Previously on End Terminal Debt. The project that you were involved in last year, one of the ladies I interviewed was a terminal cancer patient in Idaho. When her credit union found out that she was dying of stage four terminal colon cancer, they paid off all the debt that she had with them. Wow. Credit cards, car loans, the whole nine years. Wow, amazing. What that has inspired me to do is to create a project that will convince every bank, credit union, credit card company, and mortgage company in this country to forgive the debt of all their terminal cancer patients, including you. Yeah, because you get them to do my car and my house note. They would never regret it. And they would just start a movement that their grandchildren and great-grandchildren and their generations would be proud of. I'm responding on behalf of Jim. You reached out to him through LinkedIn messaging in regards to Lisa. I'm Andy Janning, and this is the story about convincing one bank to forgive the debt they hold for one customer with terminal cancer and persuading other lenders to do the same. This is End Terminal Debt. The email response from the bank employee I'm calling Mary arrives less than 24 hours after the one I'd sent to the man I'm calling Jim, the bank's CEO of Consumer Lending. It reads, I'm responding on behalf of Jim. You reached out to him through LinkedIn messaging in regards to Lisa. We're very sorry to hear what she's going through. We'll review Lisa's account and your request this week. I'm reading this in my home office and I start running, literally running around my house in excitement, much to the bemused and slightly confused enjoyment of my wife Carla, our two daughters, and our two dogs. I can't believe Jim saw this message from a total stranger, took it seriously, and made arrangements to get back to me in less than a day. I calmed down enough to type an email back to Mary. Thank you for your fast response. It's impossible to overstate how much Lisa would appreciate your willingness to forgive her car loan and how much help it would be during this most difficult season of life. I look forward to your decision. This is it, I'm thinking. They're going to come through for her. They're going to come through for Lisa. This has to be why they responded so fast. I can't wait to tell Lisa the good news. I start typing a message to her, then stop short. And that's when I remember that Lisa doesn't know about any of this. Is it really a good idea to tell her that her bank is thinking about forgiving her loan? I need to step back, catch my breath, and reassess. All I have is a sympathetic email from her bank that only commits to considering the request, not granting it outright. The fast response is a good sign, yes, but that's all it is. Telling her now could get her hopes up, and I don't want to do that to her. Three hours after my response email to Mary, she replies, Good afternoon. Uh, is it possible that we speak to Lisa? Nothing left to do but to tell Mary the truth. Lisa never asked me to make this request. She doesn't know that I've done so on her behalf. I'm trying to keep the loan forgiveness a surprise because I don't want her to get her hopes up. And if you contact her, though, that's no longer possible. Thanks for understanding. I include a link in the email to the documentary project I created about the financial crisis of cancer, where Mary can find the video interview I did with Lisa as proof that I know her and that her story is legit. Mary has to understand this logic. Surely she doesn't want to put Lisa through any more than she's already been through or put any more stress in Lisa's life. She's been through enough. Three days go by with no updates from Mary, so I email her again. 
Any updates to share about my request for Lisa? I hope my previous email created more clarity than confusion. I'm happy to continue the conversation at your convenience. Again, no response. And this is starting to feel like Bill and Ted all over again. As much as I want to call Mary as fast and efficient as a live conversation would be, I'd want to record those conversations for accuracy and posterity, a condition to which Mary may not consent. She would need to, given that her office is likely in one of the 11 states that require consent to record from all parties on the call. If I recorded her without her approval, it would violate her trust, reduce her willingness to help Lisa, and expose me to some pretty serious legal problems. So email's going to have to do for now. Another five days go by with nothing from Mary. Eight days after our initial exchange, I email Mary again. Any updates to share on Lisa's auto loan forgiveness? I'm happy to set up a phone call or a video call to address any questions you have. Thank you for your time and consideration. Three minutes later, I reply, finally. Unfortunately, we won't be able to discuss her account details with you. If she wishes to contact us, we can review with her. Thank you. As frustrating and terse as Mary's response is, she's right. Without formal legal consent from Lisa, I technically have no right to any information about the status of any of Lisa's accounts with this or any financial institution. Federal banking regulations are very clear on this point. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't suck. And now I have a decision to make. If I tell Lisa to call Mary, I also have to tell her why, and this whole secret plan is exposed and the risk of the bank breaking Lisa's heart goes through the roof. But if I don't tell her, then she'll never have the chance to explain her situation to the bank, which brings the chances of the loan forgiveness actually going through down to zero. I make up my mind, and I respond to Mary. Understood. I'm happy to have Lisa reach out, and since you've been the primary point of contact about this request so far, would either you or Jim be willing to talk to Lisa directly? It takes another full day for Mary to send a five-word reply. I would speak with her. None of Mary's previous messages contained her direct phone number, so I email her back immediately to ask for it. She never responds to that request, which is unusual from a person who claimed a desire to actually speak to someone, but I digress. Rather than wait around or send Mary another email to ignore, I contact Lisa with the worst good news I could have given her. I tell her about asking the bank to forgive her car loan and their need to hear from her directly. I give her Mary's email address, copies of all the emails that Mary and I have traded back and forth so Lisa's in the loop, and encourage her to email Mary as soon as possible. Lisa's email to Mary echoes virtually everything I had already sent to her, the terminal ovarian cancer diagnosis, the financial struggles for 10 years since, and the request for forgiveness for the car loan. Lisa also tells Mary that her health is rapidly declining, that she's in hospice care, and how the absence of the car payment would allow her to do something special with her five grandchildren, ages 10 to 18 months old. The timestamp on Lisa's message is February 8, 2022, at 2.20 p.m. Eastern Time. Neither Lisa nor I know how long it's going to take the bank to get back to her. Given Mary's inconsistent response times, it could be hours, days, or weeks before she receives the bank's decision. We will get one, though. Almost certainly. We will get one. To understand what's about to happen, we need to think like a financial institution for a few minutes. 
Their decision to forgive a loan has to weigh a variety of factors, the needs of the customer, the direct cost of the forgiveness to the institution, and the regulatory and legal ramifications of the forgiveness. Now, before I address those issues, a quick disclaimer. The information I'm sharing is not intended as financial, regulatory, or legal advice, but rather for general informational purposes only. Please retain the services of a qualified professional for advice about your specific situation. Now, can financial institutions legally forgive debt for terminal cancer patients? Even though I'd worked in and around banks and credit unions for over three decades, I hadn't given the legal and regulatory details of such a decision a second thought until I talked to Beth about it. Now, Beth isn't her real name. To protect her identity, I'll refer to her as a financial services executive speaking on the condition of anonymity. Beth, however, does not work at Lisa's bank. Beth's candor on the subject of loan forgiveness is refreshing and sobering. In an email statement to me, lightly edited to protect the identity of Beth and her employer, and brought to life here by my wife Carla, Beth brings up three main points. Here's the first. I've talked with my boss and our CEO about ways to help people in similar situations. It's just so hard to really balance these things out. There is a financial institution philosophy out there set in place by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and fair lending laws to prevent unfair, deceptive, or abusive acts or practices and prevent us from having disparate treatment across our customer base. If we help someone who's younger, older, male, female, or of a different race or religion, and we deny someone else, are we serving our customers equally? To find an answer to Beth's question, I contacted the Indiana Department of Financial Institutions, along with the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or FDIC, which is an independent agency created by Congress to maintain the stability and public confidence in the nation's financial system. That's a quote directly from the FDIC website, by the way. The National Credit Union Administration, or NCUA, which is another independent federal agency similar to the FDIC, but focused on credit unions, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the Bureau of Housing and Urban Development, along with the head of a prominent financial services consultancy. All of them agreed. According to the regulations of the NCUA and FDIC, the decision to offer credit union members and bank customers a loan forgiveness program is made by the individual institution. These programs are not required by NCUA or FDIC regulation. However, so long as the creditor does not discriminate against any applicant on the basis of race, color, religion, national origin, gender, marital status, or age, then that creditor can, in good faith, offer a special credit program or credit-related assistance program that is designed to meet the special needs of consumers with medical conditions. Beth continues, there is a moral dilemma that occurs here where we see the human need and suffering and negative impact that stress can have in these situations. There are situations where people are terminal with so many different diseases and life expectancy can range from days to years. I agree with Beth that there are any number of serious and potentially fatal diseases out there, but cancer is uniquely destructive and deserves singular attention. Cancer is physically lethal it is the second leading cause of death in America behind heart disease. Cancer is financially catastrophic for patients and families. The average cost to treat cancer is $150,000, a figure nearly twice the average treatment costs for stroke, heart attack, diabetes, and epilepsy 
combined. Cancer annihilates those in poverty. Eight of the 10 states with the highest poverty rates also rank in the top 10 for cancer death rate, according to the Centers for Disease Control. And African Americans still have the highest death rate of any racial or ethnic group for most cancers in this country. Beth concludes, How do you let customers know that we are there for them and that we care without being taken advantage of? How do we weigh needs of a customer with a $3,000 auto loan versus a customer with a $500,000 mortgage? And I'm not trying to be facetious here in my response, but it's difficult to pin down a line on the spectrum of what we can do and who we can do it for. We have a process for a medical forbearance being reviewed and formulated. We may continue to discuss a discretionary fund or insurance for helping our terminal patients as well. We have a heart that wants to help and a brain that tells us that we can't because we'll be taken advantage of. I want to have a solution, but we don't have anything figured out yet. Beth mentions being taken advantage of twice in as many paragraphs. Her fear of being taken for a ride is understandable. Unfortunately, there will be a small percentage that will attempt to manipulate whatever forgiveness program a lender puts in place. But that same lender can develop procedures to verify a customer or member has terminal cancer for the purposes of qualifying them for loan forgiveness. It will take additional time and resources, but it can be done if the institution truly wants to be a good Samaritan. Which brings us to the effect of the forgiveness on the financial institution's bottom line. I'm going to use credit unions in this example, primarily because I know the industry well, having served in it for nearly 25 years as an executive, keynote speaker, consultant, and storyteller. Now, if you don't know what a credit union is and how it compares to a bank, here's a very quick primer. Banks are for-profit financial institutions owned by a small group of stockholders and have been around for hundreds of years. Virtually anyone can become a customer of a bank. Credit unions, however, were established in America about a century ago as alternatives to banks, created as non-profit financial cooperatives and exempt from federal income taxes. Credit unions aren't owned by stockholders. You join a credit union by becoming a member of it, and since every credit union is a cooperative, every member, and not a small group of stockholders, owns an equal share of their credit union. Banks and credit unions now offer virtually identical products to the public. Checking accounts, savings accounts, loans, credit cards, investments, business services, etc. And compete intensely for every dollar in your wallet. I analyze the publicly available financial performance data from the largest credit union in every state in America as of December of 2021. Collectively, these 50 credit unions hold just over $500 billion in assets, about a quarter of the $2 trillion in assets held by the 5,000 credit unions across the country. There are nearly 17 million Americans living with some form of cancer right now. Although the exact stage of cancer those Americans have is unknown, if we divide that 17 million by four, which is the general number of stages of cancer, we could infer that there are just over 4 million Americans living with stage 4 terminal cancer right now. Those roughly 4 million terminal cancer patients represent about 1.2% of the American population. It's reasonable, therefore, to infer that approximately 1.2% of any bank's customers or credit union members has stage 4 terminal cancer. Now, if your ears are glazing over and your finger is drifting toward the pause or skip ahead button, I don't blame you. 
That's a lot of numbers and data to share in a podcast, and it's hard to visualize just how big a billion or even a million really is. Here's an illustration that may help us understand the financial impact of ending terminal debt for the estimated 1.2% of Americans living with terminal cancer. Let's think back to the parable of the Good Samaritan. Imagine the largest credit unions in every state are collectively the Good Samaritan, who is carrying $100 in cash, which represents the sum total of his assets. Now imagine all of the terminal cancer patients at all 50 of those credit unions are collectively the wounded traveler by the side of the road. Suppose the Good Samaritan wanted to pay off all of the wounded traveler's credit cards, car loans, and personal loans. How much would that cost the Good Samaritan out of his $100 in cash? 32 cents. Not $32, 32 cents. Now suppose the Good Samaritan felt even more generous and wanted to pay off not just the wounded traveler's credit cards, car loans, and personal loans, but also his first and second mortgage. How much would that cost the Good Samaritan out of his $100 in cash? 67 cents. Not $67, 67 cents. Let's bring it back full circle to Lisa and her car loan at the bank. It's for a 2017 Kia Sportage. Her monthly payment is $398. And as of March of 2022, she owed a little over $14,000. Lisa's bank is charging her an interest rate of 11.79%, which is nearly triple the published rates from other local institutions for a 2017 used vehicle. If Lisa's bank wants to be the Good Samaritan in this story, they can afford to be, because the $14,000 that Lisa still owes on her car, her bank makes that much in net profit in 21 seconds. Six days go by after Lisa asks Mary for help, and no answer from her or anybody else at the bank. I ask Mary once again through email if she's received Lisa's message. Again, no response. After another nine days of silence, I message Mary again to confirm that she got Lisa's email and to remind Mary that Lisa would appreciate an update. Two minutes later, Mary sends another five-word reply. Yes, options are being reviewed. After two more days of silence, on February 25th, 2022, 17 days after Lisa's email to Mary and 32 days after Mary's initial response to my LinkedIn message, Mary emails Lisa directly to tell her what the bank will do. You won't believe it. That's next time on the finale of Season 1 of End Terminal Debt. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to and share the show on social media and leave a rating and review wherever you're listening now. Spreading the word will help financial institutions better see and serve their customers and members with terminal cancer. For more information, please visit us at endterminaldebt.com and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at End Terminal Debt. The End Terminal Debt podcast is written by me, Andy Janning. Music by Gavin Luke and Epidemic Sound, produced and edited by Resonate Recordings. Graphic design by Ryan Hunley of Second Street Creative. And the voice of Mary is played by my talented daughter, Megan Janning. And the voice of Beth is played by the most amazing woman I know, my wife, Carla Janning. Special thanks to Dr. Omar Atik, Renee Sadiwhite, Carla Tardiff, George Hoffheimer, James Marshall, Cedric Brinson, Louise Jackson, Brian Moore, and Lauren Callahan.